This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, under the seat in front of you is a Bible, so you can grab that one and turn to page 555. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, just take that one home with you. That's our gift to you. If you don't have one, we want you to have that one. Today we're going to be back in 1 Corinthians Uh, The message title, which is dripping with compassion and mercy, is time to grow up. Uh, So we want to talk about that. It actually is dripping with mercy and compassion, but sometimes direct statements are in order, and that's exactly what's in order for the folks in Corinth at this section of the letter. Now, we've been away from 1 Corinthians for a couple of weeks now. Um, Thanks for your prayers for me last week as I was in Philadelphia um, but we, we've been out for a couple weeks, and now we are back into 1 Corinthians. And here's where we left. Uh, we left off in chapter 2 where Paul was defining uh, for the Corinthians, these, these believers, what it means to be spiritual. And uh, he was explaining to them, uh, really correcting their understanding of what it means to be spiritual. And he was uh, explaining that really being spiritual is having the Holy Spirit in us, and the Holy Spirit always highlights Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So the Spirit of God draws attention to Christ, and He says back in 2.14, if you look just back a little bit, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to Him, and He is unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So He is saying, look, it, to be spiritual is to have the Spirit of God. Those who don't have the Spirit of God cannot even understand these truths about Christ and him crucified but but with with the spirit we can see and we can understand who he is and what he's done. So he's going to continue that same thought uh, beginning in verse 1. And I was going to teach this whole chapter and then I was going to teach the first 17 verses and as time went on, I'm just going to talk about the first four. So we're going to move slowly through uh, this section today. And um, our ending of Corinthians will keep getting postponed uh, a little bit. So here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1, listen to the word of God. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would speak to us today by the Holy Spirit. Even as we've studied in these first two chapters, we are aware of our need for the Spirit to open our hearts to you, to open our eyes to understand, and to grant us grace to follow you. We pray that you would mature us as people, that we wouldn't be Christians who look just like the world, that we wouldn't be Christians who are stuck as infants, 
but that you would mature each of us in this church fellowship and that you would mature us together as a people, Lord. That is our prayer, that you would mature us together as a people, that we may bring much glory to Jesus, that we may reflect the crucified Messiah and the risen Messiah in our church family. So Lord, would you please do this for your glory? Speak to us today. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. I pray that you would fill us all with your spirit, that we could be hearers and doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Corinthians, as we've studied, uh, aren't that impressed with Paul. He founded their church, and uh, he was with them for about 18 months, and now he's gone, and he's written them about three years later. And, and uh, they're sort of uh, enamored with other types of teachers. They're enamored with uh, these wisdom gurus who come and bring philosophy and, and uh, various things, and they find Paul to be rather simple. And Paul has explained to them in chapter 2, verse 2, that when I was with you, I didn't use lofty speech or wisdom. I decided decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul makes no apology for preaching a very clear, direct, and focused message on Jesus and him crucified. And in the passage we just read, we see why uh, why he, one reason he addressed them in the way he did. Now, he never moves on from the message of the gospel, never moves on from the message of Christ and him crucified, but he spoke to them in very simple terms. And here is the reason why. He says in verse 1, chapter 3, uh, brothers and sisters, it's an inclusive term, uh, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So he addressed them as he did, number one, because they were and are immature. They were immature. He explains, I had to talk to you as infants. You were spiritual babes. You acted then, and he says in this passage, you act now in an infantile manner. And here's the great surprise. I mean, this had to shock them. Here's the great surprise. In the first two chapters, repeatedly, he's talking about maturity. He's talking about wisdom. He's talking about spirituality. And the Corinthians think they are mature. They think they are wise. They think they are spiritual. And here's the apostle saying, I had to treat you like infants. You were so immature and still are that I had to treat you as babies. What is a baby like? Well, a baby is self-absorbed. A baby is only thinking about its, his or her own comfort. A baby wants to be fed and wants to be changed and wants to sleep or doesn't want to sleep, as the case may be. For a baby, everything revolves around him or her. Babies cry for attention. They demand attention. And Paul says, that's exactly what you are like, Corinthians. You are a church, he says in verse 3, while there is still jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? He's saying you are a people that are jealous of one another. There is quarreling amongst you. There is bickering and strife and because you were infants, I had to feed you milk. I couldn't even give you solid food. You see, maturity, in light of what we've read in this book so far, maturity is a focusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus died for sinners in our place, that he was buried and that he rose on the third day. And that by faith in him, we receive new life, new life where we are joined to him. And so mature Christian living sees the glory of the gospel and responds to the gospel by the power of the spirit with ways that, that reflect Jesus. Maturity is understanding what Christ has done for me and then responding with a humility, realizing that I did not save myself, but he saved me. And that I'm following a crucified savior so that I take up my cross and follow him. A mature Christian sees the gospel and then lives out the entailments of the gospel by the spirit's power so that we are a humble people, so that we are a loving people, so that we are an others oriented people. The fundamental difference of an infant and an adult is an infant is completely selfish and it's understandable for an infant, but an, uh, uh, an, an infant is completely selfish and an adult is selfless. Part of growing up means that I take the needs and the preferences and the interests of others as important to me. And they aren't able to connect those dots. See, they hear truth of Christ and him crucified. And what do they do? They grab onto that truth and then they start dividing amongst themselves. Whichever leader they liked better that brought them the truth, whichever leader that they wanted to follow, they, they would say, well, I am of Paul and this is what he taught. Well, I am of Apollos and this is what he has taught. Chapter one, some of them were saying, I am of Peter and this is what he taught. And so they, rather than receive the truth of the gospel and say different guys, but same team, all preaching the same message, rather than taking that and then moving towards one another in love, in a common family, with a common mission, they divide. And he says, this is completely immature. In a book uh, called The Cross and Christian Ministry by D.A. Carson, he gives an example that is very memorable. I don't often use illustrations from theologians because usually the fastball of a theologian isn't memorable illustrations, uh, but biblical uh, teaching, you know, uh, understanding, uh, exegeting, uh, interpreting the scripture. But this one, well, I think you'll remember this illustration about spiritual infancy of this passage. This is what D.A. Carson writes. When my daughter was born, my wife found herself unable to nurse our infant. That gave me the privilege of sharing the midnight feedings. Tiffany was a dream. I could zap the formula in the microwave, change her, feed her the whole eight ounces, and tuck her back into her crib all in under 20 minutes. Then our son came along. Midnight feedings with him were horrendous. Although he had an enormous appetite, he sucked and drank with only three speeds, slow, dead slow, and stop. Worse, he had to be burped every ounce or so, a painfully slow process, or he would display his remarkable gift for projectile vomiting. Without any warning, he could upchuck what he had taken in and send it 15 feet across the room. If there were an Olympic event in projectile vomiting, he would have taken one of the medals. I never got him back into the crib in under an hour, and an hour and a half was more common. 
at least he had an excuse. He was young and his digestive system was obviously not as well developed as his sister's was at the same age. Best of all, he quickly outgrew this stage. But there are Christians who are international class projectile vomiters. Spiritually speaking, after years and years of life, they simply cannot digest what Paul calls solid food. You must give them milk for they are not ready for anything more. And if you try to give them anything other than milk, they upchuck and make a mess of everyone and everything around them. Now, now this was written, by the way, in 1993, before there was really a functioning internet and before there was a comments section on blogs and articles, before there was Facebook or Twitter. So I find it very fascinating that he's speaking of immature Christians upchucking on everyone before, he, oh, if he, well, he's still alive. And I was going to say, when he wrote this, if he could only imagine back in his day for that to happen, it had to happen verbally or in, in, a, in a newspaper article or, oh, now it can just happen everywhere all the time. He says they are infants and they still display their immaturity even in the way they complain if you give them more than milk. Not for them solid food, not for them solid knowledge of scripture, not for them mature theological reflection, not for them growing and perceptive Christian thought. Listen, they want something that won't challenge them to think, to examine their lives or to make choices and to grow in their knowledge and adoration of the living God. They don't want to hear anything that would cause them to think, that would cause them to examine their lives or cause them to make choices to reflect the message of the living God. He had to treat them as mature because they couldn't and still can't hear the message of Christ and him crucified and then act accordingly by the Spirit's power with love, grace, mercy, repentance, holiness. They didn't respond this way. They need help connecting those dots. And don't we all at various areas of our life, we all have areas of our life where we are immature, where we may be five years old in the Lord or 10 years old in the Lord or 20 years old in the Lord and yet developmentally, spiritually, we lag behind because we've not really applied God's truth in our lives. It's true of all of us. If you are a newer believer, well, this is completely understandable. The call here is to believers, at least who've, who've known the Lord, probably most of them, about five years, so they're not brand new believers by the time he's written this. Most of them are probably about five years old. And, and what he is saying to them is, it is time to grow up and take responsibility for your faith with regard to how you respond to your brothers and sisters, how you live with your brothers and sisters. It's, it's a call to move beyond, uh, move beyond where they are and to apply the gospel thoughtfully to all aspects of their life and particularly how they relate together as a church. So he couldn't speak to them. He had to speak to them as infants in Christ. Secondly, he had to speak to them as, I'm gonna call this worldly Christians. They are not only immature, but they are worldly. Verse one, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, 
because I, I just said worldly instead of fleshly Christians, because what does that mean? It just sounds different, but, but that's what he really says. You were fleshly. So I couldn't address you as people who were spiritual, who had the Holy Spirit. I had to address you as people who were given over to the flesh, the sinful nature, people without the Holy Spirit. Verse two, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Verse four, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? In other words, someone in the world who does not know the Lord. You are of the flesh. You are acting as if you are merely human apart from Christ working in your life because of the way you treat one another. The, the ESV translates this very little, literally, flesh. You are people of the flesh, fleshly people. The NIV doesn't translate it as literally, but it, it translates it in a way that, that might be more accessible for you. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. That's how they translate it. The old King James Version uses a different word. It uses the word carnal. I, I could not speak to you as people who were spiritual, but people who were carnal. Carnal. And, and, and that word and this passage has led to a doctrine and an understanding uh, of the carnal Christian. It is an unhelpful and it is a dangerous, eternally dangerous doctrine that I think has, has lost um, has lost probably, you know, much of the uh, focus that it had in previous decades. But it's still something important because I want to talk about this a second. What he is talking about here is not the doctrine of what has come to be known as the practice of the carnal Christian. He's saying that these people are immature and they act like unbelievers in certain areas of their life. You're acting like a person of the world. You're acting like a person who is merely human without the spirit of Christ. You're acting like that for a certain period of time around a certain uh, specific areas of your life. He is not saying this is a legitimate category of Christianity as if we have the spiritual Christian, the unbeliever, and then in the middle we have the carnal Christian or the fleshly Christian or the worldly Christian as if that is an acceptable category to live in. Here's how this, the doctrine of the carnal Christian works um, sometimes, a way to be explained. Oftentimes, someone professes faith as a young person. So a 10-year-old asks Jesus into their heart at vacation Bible school. A 15-year-old walks down the aisle the last night uh, when they're emotionally exhausted of summer camp and and prays a prayer and says, I'll never be the same and receives Jesus Christ. Or in college, the, somebody's girlfriend breaks up with them. They're devastated. And so they reach out to the Lord and uh, ask him into their life. And then what happens after that is that maybe there's a little bit of growth. They seem to be a, get a little bit of traction, but before long, uh, they begin to look like an unchanged person. They have professed faith. They, they have been baptized, perhaps. They say that they are a believer. They certainly had intellectual assent to Christ at one point in their life. But what happens is, as 
they age, they show no spiritual temperature in their life. They show no desire for Jesus in their life. There's no interest in God's word. There's no interest in being among God's people. That there's no real sign of repentance from sin. There's no real sign of the Holy Spirit active in their life. Rather, they live just like someone who doesn't know Christ. They live like someone who is merely human, like someone who is of the world. Their lifestyle, their decisions, their mindset looks just like the person who uh, is an unbeliever because they have no connection uh, to God or his people or his world. And some want to call them a Christian, a carnal Christian to be sure, someone who doesn't live like it, but someone who believes intellectually. Not someone who had a bad summer or a bad year, but someone who has a lifestyle apart from God and his people, yet professed faith earlier in their life. And by the basis of their intellectual acknowledgement of Christ, someone wants to call them a carnal Christian. And DFW is filled with people like this. Not with people who want to call them a carnal Christian, but people who think, who are living with some sense of a security before the Lord because of a decision they made, even though it was not followed with a noticeable, recognizable discipleship in their life. And for someone who holds that doctrine, this is not the passage to look at for the category of a worldly Christian. The, the passage to look at would be 2 Corinthians 13.5, where Paul writes, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So in the second letter to the Corinthians, when people, if they continue in a pathway apart from the Lord, he doesn't say, well, this is a category of person who has intellectual belief. They're okay. They're a carnal Christian. He says, you better examine yourselves to see if you even know Jesus. Because if you know Jesus, he lives in you. And if the spirit of God lives in you, that will play itself out in your lifestyle, in your thinking, in your choices, that over a period of time, you, will, you, you, you may stray, you may fall away for a season, you may backslide for a period with some kind of sinful activity, but you will come back in repentance. You will be among God and his people. You will have a heart for his word. That the category of carnal Christian, which is, I'm telling you something that this passage does not teach, but the reason I'm even emphasizing it is because of its danger to give someone false assurance that you are on your way to heaven, that your eternity is secure because of a prayer you prayed at some event, because of an emotional experience you had at an at, at evangelistic gathering. Because of that, you're okay without any evidence on a consistent basis of Christ in your life. To give that false assurance, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Paul is not saying that, that there's that kind of Christian and is okay. Now, he is saying there are some legitimate Christians who right now look like people of the world. He is saying that. He is saying that someone could be a believer and for a season in their life with part of their life, they might look like an unbeliever. He does say that. But, but what is it about them 
that would cause him to say that they are a like people of the flesh, that they are like people of the world, that they are worldly Christians. What would it be that says that? Well, it's not that they're apart from God's people. The idea that someone could have no connection to the church anywhere, anytime, and have no concern about that, that doesn't mean they're not a Christian, but it does mean they should seriously examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. Because the New Testament knows nothing about a believer that wouldn't be attached to the body of Christ. There's there's no idea that that would be an option in the New Testament. So these people are in the church. Are you kidding me? They are gathering together. The problem is how they act when they're together. But it's not that they're together. They, They are exercising spiritual gifts. It's not like their entire lifestyle is of the world. Paul says, you have all the spiritual gifts. He actually commends He thanks God for them, rather, in the first chapter because of God at work in their life. The Spirit of God is at work in these people's lives. They're just very immature and messed up, but they're not separating themselves from God's Word. They're not separating themselves from God's Spirit. They're messed up on what God's Spirit does, but but they're they're not living apart from the Spirit. They're not living apart from the people of God. They haven't removed themselves from the leadership of their local church and living sort of independently on their own as a carnal Christian. That's not what's going on here at all. They are part of the church. Their problem is, verses three and four, you're still of the flesh for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Their problem is that they are arrogant and selfish and divided and jealous and giving themselves over to strife. That's their problem. It's not that they're separating themselves from God and his people. It's that they're acting very immature and worldly when they are together. And when they hear the message of God, they tend to receive it and then have some kind of strange allegiance to the teacher who brought it to them in a way that would separate themselves from other teachers. Now, this this all goes back to chapter 1 where he says, chapter 111, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Paul says, I taught you Christ and him crucified, but you're acting like Christ is divided, and you're acting like Paul was crucified for you. He wasn't, or Peter, or Apollos. Jesus was. So see, their problem is they are attaching themselves to leaders so as to promote themselves. So there's a a certain doctrine or theology, but it's really motivated by selfishness. Maybe maybe this example will help. Last weekend, uh, I was in Philadelphia and at a conference and then Sunday morning speaking at a sister church there. And so it was with great care and concern the Sunday night before I watched the Cowboys-Eagles game because I have friends there in Philadelphia uh, talk about worldly and immature. Christians who 
whose allegiance to the Eagles is unbelievable. And I knew that if the Cowboys lost, it would be a painful conference for me. I would probably be introduced to speak at their church and mocked before I even stepped up to the pulpit uh, because of my allegiance to the Cowboys. And so I was really hoping we would win. And when we won, I just found myself, man, I had so many thoughts I just had to put aside. I had so many things I wanted to say publicly. Being a Cowboys fan, though, I had character and (laughs) self-control. And humility. So I didn't need to do those things. But I did, I was looking for certain friends. There were certain guys who are so, I mean, like, when, they, I mean, seriously, there are these kinds of, there's these kinds of friends. If they live in Philadelphia, if the Eagles beat the Cowboys at 11 o'clock at night, I get a text for them. Hey, why? Well, they're texting me and just rubbing it in, okay? So I just want, but when I wanted to see them, it wasn't that I wanted to gloat as a Cowboys fan, as if I wanted to elevate the, the business of the Dallas Cowboys, or the institution of the Dallas Cowboys, or the team of the Dallas Cowboys. I wanted to elevate myself by attachment to the Dallas Cowboys because that, that somehow made me have bragging rights over them and their attachment to their 500 team, not our 7-1 and one team. And I, I wanted, this makes me feel good to rub your face in it when I see you. This is all playful, but still, it was really about me being better than you, not these two institutions, one winning a game. It's really about me and you when I see you and start tossing jokes and you getting back to me and we're having fun and barbing at one another. Unbelievable. But that's what's going on here. It's an attachment to a person, a theological team that that really is promoting themselves. It's really saying I'm of Paul and that means I'm better than you. Only theirs was probably not good fun and joking like what I'm talking about with sports teams. Based on what Paul has communicated in these first two chapters, it's time for the Corinthians to mature. It's time for them to begin to grow up. It's time for them to start looking like people of the spirit in this area of how they relate together and less like people of the flesh people of the world. So what would maturing look like for them? Well, first of all, it would mean that they return to the gospel. Again, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what he's talked about throughout this whole letter so far. Maturing for them would be returning to the gospel, returning to Christ, and asking, what does it mean for me to follow a crucified Messiah? What does it mean for me to take up my cross What does it mean for me to follow him as ones whose sins are forgiven entirely because of what he has done? And what does it mean for me to be part of his body, joined to his people, fellow believers? It's a returning to the gospel. And then secondly, it would be a repenting from their divisiveness a repenting from divisiveness. They must recognize they have sought to promote themselves over one another. They've acted out of arrogance and selfishness, and and they must turn. But it doesn't stop there. And this is where the text gets particularly, oh, it's particularly potent for us today. This is where the text speaks to us. It's never enough biblically to stop doing what is wrong. Following Christ doesn't mean just avoiding wrong things. It means pursuing the right things. Whenever you read a command that forbids something, there is an implicit command to do something instead. So 
when the scripture says you shall not, one of the Ten Commandments, the scripture says you shall not commit adultery. It doesn't mean that you're home free and a pillar of godliness because you're not sleeping around with married people. It means that you therefore avoid unrighteous sexual practices and you embrace righteous sexual practices, which is a single would mean uh, chastity, avoiding abstinence from sexual activity because you're not married. And if you're married, it would mean cultivating an intimate life with your spouse. So don't sleep with somebody you're not married to, but cultivate a relationship of intimacy in your own marriage. When it says do not steal, it doesn't mean that you're home free just because you're not robbing banks and therefore your testimony is astounding to all around you because you're not an armed bank robber. It means that you not only don't steal, but you seek to be one who instead gives. That you're a person that's not taking what doesn't belong to you, but you're rather giving what does. So there's implicit response here. So what is the implicit response of don't say I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. Don't be jealous. Don't have strife in the church. Don't, don't, don't be quarreling as chapter one says. What is the response to that? Well, the response is that they must live out their lives as God's people, the body of Christ, joined together. They must not act in ways that separate them from one another. They must pursue one another. They must engage one another. They must move towards one another. It's not enough to just stop arguing. It's cultivating a peace and a harmony and a relationship that would represent the work of the gospel. In the death and resurrection of Christ, we are made one. And so this means that we are to pursue one another together. You may not be contributing to strife. But are you cultivating harmony in a proactive way? So you may not be contributing to to any kind of strife at Grace Church, but are you pursuing relationship and peace with others? See, that's what maturing would look like in their context and in ours. The question's just not, who are you jealous of? The question's not, who are you acting arrogantly towards? The question's not, who are you divided from? The question's not, who in the church is mad at you and who are you mad at? I mean, if that's live, that is a question. But that's not the only question. The question as well is, are you in growing relationships? Am I pursuing relationships with other in the body of Christ that represent growth and maturity together? Are you extending yourself to build community? It's not just enough that people aren't mad at me. It's not just enough that I'm not a walking ball of offense, running into people and offending everyone I encounter. That's great. Don't be a ball of offense rolling through the congregation. But am I actually building community? Am I with my life serving others? Am I bearing the burdens of others? That's a totally different question. Am I bringing encouragement to others? Am I gathering together personally with believers to support them and help them to meaningfully share life together in the body of Christ? That's the question. Am I resisting the temptation to isolate myself? Am I growing in my faith? The the, the culture, we isolate ourselves. That's the temptation of this culture. The temptation of this culture is relationally 
to be a mile wide and an inch deep, to know a ton of people, to network with a ton of people, to have a lot of acquaintances, but to have no one in my life that I'm connected to in a meaningful way who really knows me and whom I really know that's a Christian, that we're growing together. May we not be a church filled with people that say, I follow this guy and I follow that guy and I don't like you because who you follow. May we not be that church, but may we not pat ourselves on the back because we're not that church as if we're accomplishing all that Christ has for us as his people. Who are we moving toward? If you would say, I, I'm not talking about someone who's new here. If you're new here, this is your first Sunday, like, whoa, if this is your first Sunday, okay, we're not saying on the door on the way out, sign your life away, give us your ATM pin number and, you know, sign over. You know, we're not saying this, okay? We're not saying that if you're a member either, but uh, <laughs> oops. <laughs> yeah. We're not saying that to anybody. So if you're new here, you've come to this church since we moved into this building, you're finding out about what's, fantastic, take your time, get to know us. But if you're a part of this church, if this is where you call home, and if your life is not characterized by taking steps of movement towards people in this congregation to love and serve and walk out your life together, then with all the love possible that I know how to muster, I say from this passage, it's time to grow up. Maturity is living out our Christian life in relationship with others in God's church. It's embracing difficulties. It's embracing the challenges of community life. It's investing our life with others for the long haul by the power of the spirit. Maturity is living out the one another's of the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with serve one another, love one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, greet one another. It's filled. Maturity is living out the one another. So if maturity is the opposite of where they are, if maturity is a robust Christian life, with all the difficulties involved, lived in community with others. If that is maturity, then maturing is taking the next step in that direction. Let's not worry about maturity. Let's worry about maturing because we're all in different places. Maturity is not just about how much we know. Maturing is not about about how much we know. It's It's about taking the next step to apply what the scripture speaks to us. Some of us aren't living as those who are divided, but God is calling us to take the next step together. Listen, one of the reasons some of us aren't offending one another, competing with one another as Corinth is, is because we don't even know one another. I can't compete with you if I see the back of your head for an hour and a half on Sunday and that's the total of my relationship with the church. I'm not striving. I'm not jealous. See, some of the Corinthian sins, let's give them this. It at least assumes a proximity that some of us don't even know anything about. It at least assumes a relational proximity that we could rub each other, that we know each other enough that my immaturity rubs off on you, your immaturity rubs off on me, and we got a problem. At least there's something there that they're thrown in the mix together. There's something commendable in all of their immaturity that at least they are set up to find out they're immature when Paul addresses them now. Many in the church today just pop in and pop out. Not, I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about any church, especially in our world, in, 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 uh, in DFW. 
where there are no kinds of relationships, where there, there's, there's no connection. And if that's you, there is such good news for you today. And the good news is this, God has so much more for you of him than you're experiencing. He's got so much more for you to experience the joy of fruitful partnership with others, the joy of walking with others through the difficulties of their lives, of grieving with them, of celebrating with them. God has got so much more for us to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep, and to to experience joy with those who experience Joy. So if you are not experiencing this, don't leave here condemned. We're talking about maturing, which is taking the next step. By faith, take the next step because God has got something very good for you. There's the most countercultural article I read yesterday, uh, and it's, a counter, it's countercultural in the church. It's way countercultural in society, but it's countercultural in the church. It's written by a guy named Brett McCracken. And he wrote an article called, Church Should Feel Uncomfortable. Who wants to buy that book and go to that conference? (laughs) This is what he writes. He starts off, I love the intro, I'm not going to go through it all. He talks off saying, here would be my dream church. And it's very much, I am of Paul, I am of Paul. It's all the things he would like. This kind of music, this kind of liturgy, these kind of practices, uh, this kind of doctrine. And, And he didn't, he's not going to a church without sound doctrine. He's going to a church that preaches gospel. But he's saying, I'm basically not in my dream church. God put me in the church that's not all the things I would write on the menu for it to be like. He says, talking about one's dream church is increasingly, I've come to think, an exercise not only in futility, but flat out gospel denial. The church doesn't exist to meet our every need and satisfy our various checklists of taste and comfort zone preferences. If anything, it exists to destabilize such things. The church should draw us out of the dead eye stupor of a culture of comfort worship. It should jostle us awake to the reality that comfort is one of the greatest obstacles to growth. The three years I've been at my current church have been difficult and full of discomfort, but also probably the most spiritually enriching three years of my life. There's serious wisdom in the familiar adage to get out of your comfort zone. Nothing matures you quite like faithfulness and discomfort. For too long, the mantra in Christian culture has been seeker sensitive and have it your way. The mentality has been consumer comfort. Find a church that meets your needs. Find a church that welcomes you home. Find a church where the worship, where, where the worship music moves you. The pastor's preaching compels you. And the homogeneous community welcomes you. Homogeneous meaning everybody's just the same. The everybody's just the same community welcomes you. If it gets difficult or uncomfortable, cut ties immediately. A dozen other options await. But this model doesn't work. Not only is it coldly transactional, what have you done for me lately, and devoid of covenant commitment, it's also anti-gospel. A true gospel community is not about convenience and comfort and chai lattes in the vestibule. Though we're going to still serve coffee in the Grace Cafe, we'll, we'll keep you comfortable there. But uh, it's about pushing each other forward in holiness and striving together for the kingdom, joining along in the ongoing work of the spirit in this world. Those interested in mere comfort and happiness need not apply. Being the church is difficult. And then he closes. This, is, this, sounds like, this, this next sentence sounds like something out of 1 Corinthians, next few sentences. 
What being the church means, looking outside of yourself, serving someone beyond yourself, putting aside personal comfort and coming often to the cross. This is what being the church means. That's what Paul says, it's coming to the cross. It means worshiping all together without segregating by age or interest. It means preaching the whole counsel of God, even the unpopular bits. It means fighting homogeneity and cultivating diversity as much as possible, even if it makes people uncomfortable. It means prioritizing the values of church membership and giving, even if it turns people off. It means being fine with the music, even if it's not your favorite style. It means sticking around even when the church goes through hard times. It means building a tight-knit community, but not an insular one, engaging neighbors and launching members into mission that calls them away. It means bearing with one another in love on matters of debate, yet not shying away from church discipline. It means preaching truth and love intention, even when the culture calls it bigotry. It means focusing on long-term healing rather than symptom-fixing medication. None of this is easy or comfortable, but by the grace of God and the Spirit's help, uncomfortable church can be something we treasure. That's what Paul is writing about here. He is calling them ultimately, and I would say at this point, implicitly and explicitly later, to move towards one another because we are not to walk alone. We are meant to walk together even in our differences and walking through them is where we grow and mature. And that's where we depend upon the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection to make a difference in us without being placed in the discomfort of walking out our lives with other Christians, we will not mature. And that's what they're failing to do. They're separate, they're divided, and they're not maturing. Gospel community is our primary context for growth in the New Testament. Here's another thing. Gospel community is our primary witness in the New Testament as well and today. This is our witness. This is not just how do I grow, that's true. Um, You wanna be sure not to go separate yourself from the people of God. But it's also our primary witness as well. Here's what he says in verse 14. Are you not merely being merely human? When you say I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? What does he mean? Here's what he means. You're acting just like unbelievers. So if an unbeliever comes into your context, would they say, oh, I need this? They would say, no, there's fighting and bickering out there. I got that at home. They would say, they would not come in and say, I need, where is this love? Where people who are different are being reconciled over their differences, where they're working together, where they're even willing to defer their preferences to someone else because of the love of Christ, where they're coming to the cross often, dying to themselves. Where is it that people are dying to themselves to love others, acting for the good of others? That I can't find in society. I can only find that in society with people who just think like me. So he's saying no one would walk into this fellowship and say, there's an uncommon love here because you're acting just like people in the world and they can get this at any neighborhood, in any street corner, in any uh, business or home in the country. But what an opportunity we have today to demonstrate by God's grace 
by God's grace and his spirit, something that is different, an uncommon love and an uncommon unity in a divided world. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm old, border, bordering on quite old, but I'm getting up there. And, and since, since I've been paying attention, which I don't think I started paying attention to anything until about 16. Since I've been paying attention, I don't ever remember since I was a teenager, our country more divided than it is today. I don't remember. It may have been there, but I don't remember it. And what the world needs to see is a church that in all of our weakness and all of our limping along and all of our, all of our weak attempts, a, a, a people that are relying on Christ to live a unified testimony in a divided world. I can't remember a time that the light could shine brighter in the darkness than right now in our country. Because there is all kinds of darkness everywhere, but the light can shine when people are united. And right now, Right now, and, and, and it'll change. In a couple of weeks, it'll be something else. A couple of weeks, it'll be something else. But right now, what is on display that is so clear are political differences in our country and even in the evangelical church. The reality is, from where I sit, from what I've read in the last week, from people I've talked to, it's my impression that the evangelical church feels, in the U.S., more divided today than it was last Sunday before the election. There is a sense of that in the church today. And if you are like me, a white Christian, and that's news for you, you're not aware of that, that that's news, then you only need to listen to the voices of many minority Christians, minority evangelicals in our country, racial minorities is what I mean, evangelicals who feel today like there's been a loss of ground in the racial reconciliation that they've worked so hard for in recent years. I'm not saying there is, but I'm saying there is that feel and there is that perception among many. And so whether that's the case or not, fresh off the election, that is the sense of many. So we all have work to do. Whatever our race, whatever our background, whatever our socioeconomic level, we all have work to do to understand one another, to listen to one another, to die to our own preferences, to, to, to listen to one another rather than lecture one another, to, to, to walk together uh, in the love of the gospel. If that happens, if, if we, if the church in this country and us, I, I'm not responsible for the church in this country, nor are you. We're responsible for ourselves in this church, primarily when we talk about a local church. If we in this church can unite our witness in a way that, that supersedes racial differences, acknowledges racial differences, embraces racial differences, but is not separated by them. If we can do that with economic differences, political differences, age differences, all kinds of preferences, if we can embrace the gospel and rise above that, there will be a witness by the spirit of God through the gospel that will be shocking to this culture. Because the culture does not see this. They do not know what to do. They, do, they, they cannot see a divided people. And my, they cannot see a unified people. And the concern is that even the church, if we don't run to Christ and him crucified, we could see ourselves further divided as well. And I pray that is not the case. It's time for us to start maturing. 
It's time for us to embrace difficulty in the article I read. It's time for us to, to, to get right with those we've offended if there are those kind of people. And if we don't have known offenses with people in the congregation, it's pursuing relationship, it's pursuing care, it's bearing one another's burdens, it's inviting people into our homes, it's listening and praying and caring and serving and building friendships together. It's saying, I wanna be a spiritual adult. And adults are lacking in our culture right now. Spiritual adults are lacking, sadly, in our culture. There are children in the churches everywhere. And I'm not talking about what's going on back there. I'm talking about us in here. There are children everywhere. There's immaturity galore. There is self-centeredness and consumer Christianity and what's in it for me and you didn't and you're not. And that's everywhere. Adults are hard to find. And I believe God wants to make us into a family where we are adults extending care, dying to ourselves, bearing the needs of others for the glory of God. So what's your next step? Maturing, what's the next step for maturing? Maybe if you have a broken relationship, it's getting with that person and doing whatever you can to get that reconciled. And if you can't do that, call in some help for some help. Ask a community group leader, ask a trusted friend, ask a pastor, whatever we can do to help bring repentance and reconciliation. Maybe it's moving towards someone different than you taking initiative with them. Maybe it's visiting a community group. That's where we do community. That's where we try to walk this stuff out. Maybe it's visiting a community group and saying, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to come and see what this is about. I'd like to come this week. You can visit one. Maybe it's returning to your community group. Okay. Everybody's welcome. Amnesty day. Everybody can come in and back to your community group. Welcome back. You're in. Okay. You're in. Don't feel like I'm on the outside. Don't feel like I'm out of the group. No, you are welcome back in. The Lord always extends his amnesty to his people. And so come back in. Maybe you do attend and it's taking seriously your community group. You could show your record. You could show your attendance record and it would be pretty good. But if you showed your heart, it would just be an obligation. It would be a dry duty. It's the Lord is not, has not put on your heart the care of those you're with so that you're experiencing life together. Maybe it's bearing the burden of a struggling person. Maybe the next step for you is reaching out to someone you know that's suffering and say, can we have lunch? Can we have coffee? Can I pray for you? It's just bearing a burden, being a listening ear. Maybe it is inviting someone into your home for fellowship. Maybe it's committing your heart and life to a church, not this church necessarily, if you're a guest here, whatever, evangelical, Bible-believing, uh, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. I'm using the word evangelical in the theological sense, preaching the gospel, not a political, preaching the gospel, teaching the Bible, building community, that kind of a sense. Find a church like that. You're welcome here, but maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe it's beginning to get some counsel on addressing the cynicism in your heart. There's some of us that say, this is great, this is idealistic, it's not going to happen to me. I tried that, and I got burned in a church. So I would just like to sit on the outside forever. I'm just going to show up, sing the songs, hear the sermon, every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm out the door. Because I'm not going to get hurt again. Well, maybe it's sitting down with someone and say, would you pray for me? There is a cynicism, there is a hurt, there is a bitterness that's holding me back from experiencing what God has for me. Maybe it's putting a, quote, worldly Christian friend on your radar and with compassion and love reaching out to him or her. 
not letting them go, going after them, say, I love you. What can I do to help you? It's not just saying it's okay to be a worldly Christian, but it's reaching out and loving and drawing them back. Whatever it is, take a step today towards maturity. What is the Lord calling you? Don't leave here with that. What is my next step? What can I do that would push me towards God's people in meaningful community? The next step of walking out my life together with them, because that's what it means to be on a maturing pathway, a spiritual person, a person of the Holy Spirit, someone who is maturing out of infancy into toddler, out of toddler, into childhood, out of childhood, into adolescence, out of adolescence, into adulthood. It really is not most important where we are on that spectrum. It's what direction are we moving? Let's take a step by God's grace and may he help us all mature in his way. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.